Father in heaven, please, by your Spirit, please help us see the unfolding of your Word, the light that comes from it being unfolded, the wisdom that comes from your Word. Help us to go from being simple-minded to more gospel-minded. Father, I pray for strength and help clarity and teaching and I pray for those listening that what enters the ear in your sovereign plan would go to the heart and I pray that you would help us all Father we love you and we thank you for this opportunity to be here today to hear your word it's your name that we call upon may Christ be exalted Amen Amen When should you disregard exciting news about the future? Not fake news about the future, but real, accurate news about the future. When should you disregard exciting news about the future? Here's the answer I came up with. When the news doesn't really have any bearing upon you. Here's what I mean by that. Over and over in the last few weeks, my email inbox and my phone, even some of my text messages have been blowing up lately with Black Friday specials and holiday promos and you know those promo codes. Maybe even in your physical mailbox, you're getting extra mailers this time of year telling me of all this exciting things happening, all these sales taking place. You know what? Most of it, I'm able to disregard. But there's some of it that it's hard to disregard. That's the part of it that applies to me. I think, ooh, I've got to go to that store because somebody asked me to buy them a gift from that store for my family. So I need to remember that promo code. I don't know if you can relate. But if you're not going to shop at a store or you already have the item or nobody's asking you to buy them a gift from that store, then you probably disregard even that exciting promo code, those news, those coupons. Why are we saying this? Well, because Old Testament prophecy can feel a lot like a promo code to a lot of Christians. It's something that, well, I already believe in Christ, so why do I need this prophecy about him. I already believe in him. Why would I take time to study it and examine it? I already believe in Christ. Is that kind of an optional thing for me to know and believe now? There's some truth to it that Old Testament prophecy can sometimes feel like optional promo codes to Christians. Don't I just need one good prophecy? Do I really need to learn others? I hope today you'll see why we need Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And the good news this morning is that today, and Lord willing, the next two Sundays, we're going to be spending those three times of teaching, teaching on Old Testament prophecies that point to Christ and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So I hope that you'll listen well today and listen the next two Sundays, but I don't want you to think that Samuel and I, you know, we're covering all the prophecies there are. Uh, There are 
many prophecies to enjoy. Why are we talking about Old Testament prophecy? Well, the scriptures tell us in Romans 15.4 that everything written in former days was written for our instruction in the Bible. That through that, what's written in these former days might give us endurance, encouragement, and hope. And I hope today you'll see that. Here's my prayer, my hope for you today in listening to the prophecy that we're going to be talking about. My hope is that you will take the ancient words foretold long ago and you would redeem them in your heart. They have real value. It's not like something you buy in the store and then it's, oh man, I've got extra promo codes now. I can't use it. I've already used the one I had. You know how some stores only let you use one? The scriptures want you to use all of the good news about Christ, not because you're buying Jesus, but because you are already a possessor of him if you're a Christian. And these prophecies inflame your worship. They prevent you from having, quote-unquote, buyer's remorse or doubts that creep up when somebody else shows you their idol in life and says, well, I worship this and I give my life to this. And you might be feeling like, what's in my arsenal to show them that, that I do have the true and living God, Christ? Prophecies help you prove that Jesus really is the Christ and the Messiah. Old Testament prophecies help you revere the Lord's plans in redemptive history. Old Testament prophecies, yes, they're an arsenal against your doubts. They help your joy and maybe most needful of all, your present hope. This is the last thing I'll say about modern advertising before we get to the text. And it's this. I got so many emails that said, And here's what it literally said. It said, you've had this type of year, and the advertisers were afraid to say what type of year it was for fear that, you know, has it been a hard year or profitable year for some people? It says, you've had this type of year, well, you need this, and then they would show their product. Several stores sent those kind of ads to me. The good news this morning is, you've had this type of year, well, then you need this. And you could take your pick of any Old Testament prophecy to come true in Christ. That's what you need. That's what your heart needs for hope this morning. So I pray that you'll look closely at this prophecy in Numbers 24. Go ahead and turn there now. Numbers 24. If you're new to the Bible or Christianity, there's actually a book of the Bible called Numbers. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then Deuteronomy. So it's right there at the front of your Bible. We're going to look at Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19. Here's the word of God. This is Balaam speaking. It says this, verse 15, And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High 
who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Amen. That's God's word. The book of Numbers acts like a a travel log, if you will, of God's people en route to the promised land. They're near Sinai, then they move to Kadesh, and then they move to the plains of Moab where this prophecy takes place. And even though this book of Numbers is 36 chapters filled with narrative, there's only a few places where there's poetry. Only a handful of times does poetry occur in the book. And did you see with your own eyes that what we just read was poetry? We happen to be in kind of the the epicenter of poetry in the book. Chapters 22, 23, and 24 have, have the most poetry of the rest of the book. But every time in the book of Numbers when poetry is spoken, it deals with blessing and the dominion of lands, the dominion of peoples on those lands. And so, before we even start to study the particulars of this piece of poetry that is also prophecy, we can say here that God has purposes with this section of Scripture. The poetry in the book of Numbers crystallizes God's view and God's intentions that he wants his people to know. And the poetry in our text today has a very clear point. Here's the main idea of what we just read. If you were to compact it down, compress it into a single main idea, it's this. That God's prophesied king is coming to bless by destroying all enemies of his people. God's prophesied king is coming to bless by destroying all enemies of his people. Enemies will not escape this coming king's dominion. There is a scepter that will subdue. This is wonderful news or terrifying news, really based on if you are God's people or if you are from the outside looking in, if you're an enemy of God's people. In the time that we have together, let's break this prophecy down and understand it. Why did God give us this? Why does Scripture give us this prophecy right here at this time? What's the author's intention here? I think if we break it down and we try to understand it, it's going to naturally fall into two halves. Did you see the little piece of punctuation there at the end of verse 16? You see the colon there? Most translations put a colon right there. Verses 15 and 16 are somewhat of an introduction that speaks of the source of who is speaking, where the prophecy is coming from. And then right after verse 16, 
17, 18, and 19. It's the actual content of the prophecy wrapped up with its consequences. So the, the structure, if you want to get your hands around it, it's this, the source and the substance. The source is verses 15 and 16. The substance is verses 17 through 19. That'll be the, the framework for us to try to understand this prophecy today. The source and the substance. God has things to teach us from both of them. So in, in part one here, there's this purposeful source. I want you to notice there's a human source and a divine source. We'll explain a little bit more of this human source because it's obscure. Balaam might be unfamiliar to you. We'll spend a little bit less time explaining the divine source. But what is this human source, this human mouthpiece, Balaam? Who is he? Why should I care about Balaam? Is he just a guy with a weird name? Well, look at verse 15. His name may be strange, but the words he says don't really sound modern to our ears. His words might sound even stranger because he talks about oracles and his eyes, whether they have coverings or not. Look at verse 15 again. And he, this is Balaam, took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. What in the world does that mean? Well, Balaam says the word oracle there, and, and by the way, oracle just means a special utterance. It literally means a declaration. But it's a special utterance. It's a message with a fixed outcome that's prophetic predictions of future happenings. When he says there, his eye is opened, how can this human being say his eye is open? What, what does that tell us? What does that help us? Well, when he says his eye is open, it's, it's figurative language. It's figurative, representing his mental ability, his ability to perceive, his perception of spiritual things. Much has been revealed to him, and Balaam, get this, is an internationally renowned seer. But he's not out surveying land and drawing maps. When I say he's a seer, I mean he practices divination, sorcery even. He looks for omens. He tries to have supernatural communication and then give that to others. He has international fame for being in touch with supernatural communications. The omens that he looks for, you can read that. If you were to read chapters 22 through 24, you would get pieces of that, like chapter 24, verse 1, where it talks about omens. But he practices divination for a steep price. That's what you need to know about this human source, Balaam. Before we say anything else, these details about Balaam, have you ever noticed, those of you who've read the Bible cover to cover, have you ever noticed how Balaam is one of those characters that he's a human source that may seem strange, but we are definitely supposed to remember Balaam as Christians. We are definitely supposed to learn from Balaam as Christians. Here's how I know that. Christians who read their Bible cover to cover will see that this wicked-hearted Balaam, who we're going to see, serves as a lesson here in Numbers 22 
but he's also mentioned in Numbers 31. He's mentioned in Deuteronomy 23, in Joshua 24, in Nehemiah 13, in Micah 6, in 2 Peter 2, in Jude chapter 1, because there's only one chapter in Jude, and then in Revelation chapter 2. If you were keeping count, that's eight books of the Bible that Balaam is brought up again and again. So this human source is extremely memorable, even though he's not a very holy man. The human voice of Balaam is speaking prophecy here. He's a surprising voice to give prophecy to God's people because he's among the nations. He's a pagan prophet, a pagan seer, in touch with often demonic realities. So why is he talking? It's not God's people that said, well, God and his prophets aren't good enough. Let's go find a pagan a pagan seer to talk to us. Why is Balaam even speaking here? Well, let me give you the, the brief snapshot of the context because the context actually helps us see the human source even better as well. The scene here is post-Exodus. As I mentioned, Israel is traveling to the promised land from Sinai to Kadesh, now to the plains of Moab. They're ready to enter the land. They've been attacked by King Sihon and King Og. And then Moab, one of the enemies of God's people, in Numbers 22, verse 3, says, Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. So you know what Moab did? Their king was named Balak. Moab, King Balak, avoids the military option because they're outnumbered, and instead of the military option, they take the option of magic. And Moab willingly offers the fees of divination to entice that professional fame and reputation of Balaam. They hired him to do one thing, to curse God's people. You can curse them with magic. You can curse them with omens. Balaam, we don't care what you do. Just we know your reputation. We're willing to pay whatever it takes. Come bring your skills here and curse these people. Because Moab was in dread of the people of God. They were an enemy of God. So Balak, the king of Moab, takes Balaam to a high mountain. A high vantage point from which he can see God's people. Not just once, but three times. And on each high mountain, there are seven altars built with seven sacrifices, seven burnt offerings, and, and three attempts to curse God's people. But you know what happens? There is no cursing. Before I give you the verse of what happens, here's what it's like. Imagine you're a NFL or an NBA coach, and you hire a motivational speaker to come and give your team a motivational pep talk between each quarter of the game. You know, there's four quarters in the game. Quarter one finishes. The team rallies around in a huddle. Coach, hey, guys, I've got this motivational speaker. He's going to help you win. He's got a great reputation. He comes in the huddle, and he demoralizes the team. He does the exact opposite of what the coach wants. And he does it again and again. 
how frustrating that would be for the one who hired him. That's what Balaam is doing here. Balaam's saying, I can only speak what I know. That's the context. In, in verse 10 of chapter 24, it gives us really a unique summary of all these chapters that help you see clearly why this human source is speaking in the passage we read. Look at 24, verse 10. Chapter 24, verse 10. Here's the summary. And Balak's anger, he's the king of Moab, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. He struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. Behold, you have blessed them these three times. He's essentially saying, what are you doing? You will not be getting paid if this is how you're going to use your professional skills. I hired you to curse them. All you're doing is blessing them. So he tells him to flee. You see that? He says, therefore now, flee to your own place. Get out of here. And the context helps us see this most unlikely of human sources giving a blessing. Balaam's only in it for selfish gain, for fees and fame, for money and the mounting of praise and pride. So the fact that God would use this human source of all sources that he could have used to give a prophecy shows us that if this guy can't curse God's people, nobody's going to be able to. If this guy with a reputation among the other nations is backing God's people with a blessing, then who's going to say otherwise? This prophecy, just by the source of it, before we even get to the substance, but the very source of who's speaking is instructive because the very surprising nature of it communicates something important. Here, we may marvel at what God is doing. Israel's destiny is affirmed even by their enemies. God will bless his people with messianic hopes. God can even use a corrupt carrier as a conduit of his message. Even though this is not his normal means of working, he's showing nothing can stop the glorious unfolding of his plans. Nothing. How? Well, he does it, even though he's using strange means of Balaam, he's doing it with the normal means of his word. He's interrupting the perilous times by keeping his prophetic truth and his great hope-filled promises, even when unexpected, before the ears of his people for his glory and for their strength. Now, if you need strength in a pandemic, let me simply say, it's going to be coming from God's Word. It may come in the most unlikely of places. Those of you watching at home right now probably didn't think back in February that you'd be sitting on your couch listening to sermons, an unusual means, but what is God doing for you right now? He's giving you His Word. Those of you sitting there now with a mask on your face, yeah, this is a strange way to be a listener of a sermon. Just as God used that strange messenger, Balaam. But what's the common denominator every time God strengthens his people? It's with his word. The living power of his word. That's what we can trust. 
And yes, sometimes God uses very unexpected situations, even perilous times, to get us to focus that much more squarely upon his word. But did you notice there's an even more fundamental source than Balaam? It's God himself. Yahweh. Look at how verse 16 reveals where the real fountain spring of this prophecy comes from. Balaam may have his eyes uncovered and there's nothing hindering him from perceiving and seeing and hearing what God wants to say, but it's coming from God, not just Balaam himself. Look at verse 16. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Balaam is just falling down prostrate, helpless. He can't manipulate God. He can't give God money that he maybe has earned from past moments of divination. He can't strike a deal with God. He's hearing and receiving knowledge. And don't mistake it, Balaam is not saved and enjoying this warm fellowship with God. We know that from the rest of Scripture. When it says that he knows the knowledge of the Most High, it's purely and only intellectual assent of a gift God gave him. Just like Satan himself has great knowledge of God's Word, and yet it doesn't change his motives and affections for God and his obedience. Same is true for Balaam. Balaam has no heart for God, just a heart for money and fame and greed. But he does have accurate knowledge of the Most High, and he's getting it from God. He can't manipulate God. It's coming from the living God. God is speaking. God is giving this prophetic revelation. Balaam can't take the credit. And before we turn our attention now on what God says through Balaam, the substance of this prophecy, one other thing about this source. As incredible as it is that Balaam received this oracle from God, and he did this again earlier in chapter 24, same language, these oracles. Did you know that you, ordinary, average you and me, did you know that we, in reverent awe and fear and wonder, we can have clearer and more frequent divine revelation given to us than Balaam ever got. Are you aware of that? When you look to God's Word, the inspired, inspired Spirit-breathed Word, you have God's oracles right in front of you. All the books of the Bible, all 66 of them, it's revealed. It's not for the smartest, it's not for the most wealthy, but for humble listeners of the truth. Does your life give evidence to the fact that you believe in a real speaking God? A God who communicates by His clearly revealed Word. Do you trust His Word? Do you meditate on it? Or do you try to go have moments where you're in a trance? And you just speak whatever comes into your mind and you start to claim that's how God speaks to me. The way you can test if prophecy is valid is how does it accord with the word of God? Because even here in the most strangest of ways, we're going to see now the substance of what Balaam says in his prophecy fits already 
perfectly in God's redemptive plan. So let's look now at the, the substance. This is part two. There's a purposeful substance here. This is verses 17 through 19. The substance consists of a future royalty and total dominion. And if we look at this part closely, this is what's going to link us to Christ. Here's the substance of future royalty. It's found at the beginning of verse 17. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Before he said this earlier, a couple of chapters ago, he's already said in chapter 23, verse 21, the shout of a king is among them. And in 24, verse 7, his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So what is up with verse 17 not using the word king? Is Balaam changing the prophetic oracles that he's been giving? Because he suddenly realizes, okay, they don't have a king yet at this time in history. No, he actually is talking about a king in verse 17. He is talking about kings, a king, without using the word king, because if we have eyes to see it, those words star and scepter are king language. They're kingship symbols. The star is a symbol of that bright and exalted position, that position that looks out over others looks at those who are below its brightness and its position. And then the scepter, maybe that's even easier to understand how that's substance of kingship. The scepter is that symbol of authority and power and control, authority invested in a monarch. The scepter. Sometimes it's identified as a rod in the hand of a king. When the king or the monarch held his scepter, it commanded attention instant attention. It was figurative of his sovereignty. He was the judge and the king. You remember the book of Esther? The golden scepter? In the book of Esther, we know about a golden scepter that's held forth, and no one can approach the throne unless the golden scepter is held out to them. You know what? It's a matter of life and death. It's not a joke. It's not a game. The scepter is not a kid's toy. It's a matter of life and death. Only when the king wields the scepter gently to you can you come in his presence. Well, the scepter is mentioned even before Balaam ever said this. The substance Balaam is speaking about a king and a scepter Balaam is actually, even though he does not know it, Balaam is actually picking up the thread, the threads, ah, the threads and the strands of Genesis 49. Daniel Echeverria read that for us earlier in the service. Remember hearing the word scepter and what he read? Genesis 49.10 tells us, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and the obedience of the peoples. So this substance of future royalty, because remember Balaam says, I see him but not near. I behold him not now. Balaam doesn't know it, but he picks up Genesis 49.10. 
And here's where our minds start to relish these prophecies. In Genesis 49.10, we have a pre-Exodus patriarch foretelling of this royal scepter. And here with Balaam, we have this post-Exodus enemy foretelling of the promise of a royal scepter. Why is this significant? Well, these two men didn't talk to each other. The enemies of God might just hear Balaam speaking, but the people of God, when they hear him give this prophecy, the substance of it immediately rings out in one accord with what God has already promised them. It heightens the promise. In fact, the promise of of powerful royalty really harkens all the way back to Genesis 3.15. God's people in every age have banked on the promises of God that a Messiah would take dominion over his people's enemies. What does the king do? How does the king wield his scepter? Yes, in uprightness, but to crush his enemies, the enemies of his people. And that's the the second part of the substance. So it's not just a king, but it's a king who does something. There's consequences. Look there in verse 17, the second half of it. Here's what happens when this king comes on the scene. Total dominion. The star and the scepter do what? Well, they crush the forehead of Moab. Do you see that in 17? They crush the forehead of Moab. They break down, dispossessed, dispossessed, dominion, destroy. All these words tangled up in 17, 18, 19. This language shows that the scepter will subdue. The objects shattered by this scepter are peoples and nations enemies. Did you notice in 17, 18, and 19 19 there, those are all enemies of God's people. Moab, Sheth, if you're wondering who's Sheth, most likely that's the earliest inhabitants of Moab, that land area, nomadic peoples. Edom, which is south of Moab. Seir, which is kind of a, a synonym for Edom. But even Edom's enemies. There's all kinds of inescapable dominion here. And this is all going to take place in the future. Because as Balaam says there in 17, this is not now, this is in the future. But the substance of this dominion, of a king subduing other nations, when does this start to take place? Well, here's where I want to set this prophecy aside in Numbers 24, and by set it aside, I mean, let's take the truth that we've been hearing about it and start to search the scriptures. Where does this come true? Does it come true in David? I mean, he's a royal conqueror. Well, it seemed to start to come true with Saul, didn't it? You remember a few weeks ago when Samuel was preaching in 1 Samuel 14, Saul fights against Moab? But David fights against Moab even better. David fights against them as a royal conqueror who initially appears to be the sole inheritor of this long-awaited prophecy. Because remember, when Balaam has spoken these things, 
It's centuries before kingship dawns in Israel. In 2 Samuel 8, it describes David's victory over the Moabites and the Edomites and how impressive it was. But it wasn't a total crushing of the forehead because some of them did forced labor and others soon rise up down the line from David and they cause problems. They cause problems for Israel. Here's how we know David, as good as his kingship is, is not the fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy. It's only a taste of fulfillment. Only a taste. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 1, really all of chapter 3. 2 Kings 1, 1 tells us, after the death of Ahab, so down the line, this is after David has died, Moab rebelled against Israel. Moab's back on the scene. They haven't been dealt with decisively. 2 Kings 13.20 Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. 2 Kings 24.2 Moabite raiders in league with other enemies attacking Israel. As impressive and good and accomplished as David was as king, we know David wasn't the full fulfillment of what Balaam prophesied here. Things seem to unravel pretty quickly after David. So if David didn't bring lasting fulfillment and dominion, who is this royal conqueror who will crush all the enemies of God's people in full completeness? Where is that scepter? And it's my joy to close our time today telling you some of the ways Jesus Christ has fulfilled this word. In one sense, everything I've said up until this point is useless if what I'm going to say after this point doesn't deal with Christ. If, if all you see is a prophecy like this that may or may not have kind of been fulfilled in David, but it seems like it wasn't, and you're still wondering where's the Messiah, then you are missing Jesus Christ. Let me show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Here's where you get to cash in the promo code, okay? I know some of you already believe in Jesus. So I'm not trying to use this prophecy to get you to believe in him because you don't believe in him. I'm trying to use this prophecy to show you there is so much joy and hope in Jesus because this prophecy can only be fulfilled in him. You don't need to look anywhere else. Here we go. Matthew chapter 2. Maybe you're wondering, how does all this connect to this Christmas season we're in? Well, here you go. Matthew chapter 2. You know what happened around the time of the birth of Jesus? It wasn't just some next-door neighbors took notice. A king took notice. King Herod is shaking in his boots. He wants to kill this newborn king. King Herod is threatened. We see a star that has arisen. In fact, many think that the wise men used Numbers chapter 24 when it says that a star shall come, right in parallel with this king coming, that they use Numbers 24 to look at that star. 
that was shining when Christ came incarnate. You know the story of Jesus in the manger and shepherds and then wise men and how they, they followed that star. If King Herod's threatened and there's a star involved and these travelers from afar bring gifts of gold, royal gifts, can you see already that at the very first dawning of Christ and his incarnation, there are extremely strong hints of kingship. And it gets even better. We could bookend the entire first coming of Christ with a kingly fulfillment. Where's the scepter? Brothers and sisters, listen to Matthew, sorry, excuse me, yeah, Matthew 27, verses 28 and following. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. What is that? That's a scepter. Have you ever seen that detail? There's a literal scepter in the hand of Christ. He's king before he ever has that mocking scepter. That wasn't given to him in homage. That was given to him in mockery and jest by Roman soldiers. But they put a reed in his right hand, a crown of thorns on his head, a scarlet robe on him. This is a coronation of a king. The irony is they think they're just playing a joke. But all the symbolism there is showing us this is the king. They mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. Their very words, even though they're said in mockery, the words themselves are true. Hail, king. They lead him away to crucify him. The beginning and end of his first coming kingship has dawned. Whether it's his incarnation in the manger or right before his death, we have these vivid, powerful symbols of kingship. Why would God give us those right before Jesus dies? Well, that's because of the gospel message itself. The greatest enemy that our king, our Messiah king, needs to defeat is not some other people out there, some ethnic group. It's our very sin that destroys our fellowship with God, our reconciliation with Him. So the first act of this king who's been coronated on earth, even though it was in jest and mockery, is to die for the sins of His people. Turn to Christ today for refreshment, for forgiveness of your sins. All that you've ever done can be forgiven. All the sin that you've ever committed makes you an enemy of God unless Christ cleanses you by the redemption that is in Him. Turn to Him today in faith. Let the news of this Messiah be good news for you because it's not good news if you remain in your sin and you don't acknowledge His kingship now. This is the gospel news. That Christ came to forgive our sins. And he died and rose again, showing the, the sacrifice was acceptable to God. 
and he reigns. Christ reigns. You see, this prophecy in the Old Testament seemed like it would all happen at once, but we have eyes to see more than Balaam could see that this prophecy happens in some unique stages. We are in between the dawning of this king and the final crushing of the enemies. Hebrews 2, 7 and 8 tell us that he's been crowned. It says, you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection under his feet, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we do see Jesus crowned. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see total dominion belonging to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25 tell us, then comes the end. When? When's the end? Then comes the end when He, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. He's the bright morning star as Revelation 22.16 tells us his second coming consummates the rest of this prophecy. His second coming, Revelation 19, 15 and 16, shows his striking down the nations, taking final dominion over all peoples. He takes his scepter and for his enemies it's a rod of iron. It's iron rule to his enemies because they don't align with righteousness. And he accomplishes the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So brothers and sisters, this Christmas, please look afresh on the incarnate Christ, attested by starlight, already receiving golden tribute, and before He comes again already defeating the worst enemy, sin and death. Tremble in fear, but not because you disbelieve this king. Tremble in fear because all these glories have already been told for those who would have ears to hear. We apply this prophecy best when we trust God the most. All the uncertainty of life and the perilous times, let his words speak through the uncertainty and give you hope. Be awakened today that prophetic truth really does re-script your life from the Bible. Pay attention to it. Worship it. Be challenged today that when you read things like in the book of Acts, how Paul reasoned in the synagogues and proved that Jesus was the Christ. If you ever wonder, how did Paul prove he was the Christ? Well, he took a bunch of prophecies proving only Jesus can fulfill these. All of these combined. And humble yourself. Humble yourself today knowing that apart from Jesus, you were one of the enemies of God that would have been crushed on the last day. But God has turned you from an enemy into a friend by forgiving you of your sin. And be encouraged today that that God alone knows the future. No evil can stop his messianic hopes from being revealed. I hope you'll marvel at not just his first coming, but you'll marvel at the second coming that's promised. Because the main idea, there is a coming king. He's going to bless his people by crushing all enemies. Can you see how we still hope in that, even as they did there? The truth of God remains. 
So let's close today singing a song that swells with praise for all the themes we just talked about. It's called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Let me read the lyrics to this hymn, and then, then we'll close in prayer. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Think about how this fits with Numbers 24. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Let's pray and then sing. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you because you alone have all authority. Kingship belongs to your name. Father, we thank you for giving us prophecies of old that don't ever expire and go to waste and just seem optional. We thank you for giving us prophecies that rescript our hopes even for today, that heighten our excitement of being your people. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray. Amen.